Welcome to episode number 291 of the Hunt Back Country podcast. Today we're talking about shelters, the design of shelters, and what you should consider when selecting a shelter. Our guest is Henry Shires of Tarp Tent. Yes, we do talk about some Tarp Tent shelters specifically and their models and the different options that Tarp Tent offers, but this conversation goes both much deeper and much broader than that. And we talk about the different pros and cons of things such as three season versus four season shelters, floorless shelters, freestanding versus non-freestanding shelters, different material options such as Silnan versus Dyneema, and much more. We also talk about the practical use of shelters, such as dealing with condensation, site selection, setup, and much more. You guys are sure to enjoy this one as a backcountry hunter. Obviously, shelters are a critical aspect of your gear and quite literally your home when you are in the backcountry. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in. If you haven't yet, we would really love to see a review from you in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you may be listening to this, or also consider just sharing the show with a friend who may benefit from it. If you have anything for us directly, feel free to send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. We'd love to hear about a question you have, a topic or guest suggestion for a future show, or anything of that sort. But right now, let's dive into this conversation with Henry Shires from Tarp Tent. All right, well, Henry, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. We're excited to have you on today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So you are uh, the founder of Tarp Tents, uh, which Steve and I have both used Tarp Tent shelters over the years. Uh, I'm honestly kind of uh, excited to hear a bit more of the backstory because I don't even know how long Tarp Tent's been my, on my radar. I can't remember when uh, when that came to be, but it's been many years, but I don't know the full backstory. So if you could, I'd love to kind of just start at the beginning of uh, how did things begin for you and for Tarp Tent? Um, well, okay. So, um, depends how far back you want to go, but, um, I mean, I've, I've had an interest in backpacking for a very long time when I was, I think 11 or something or 12, maybe like a friend of the family gave me this book called the high adventures of Eric Ryback, who had written a story. He was the first one to really write a story about through hiking the Pacific crest trail. And, you know, whether or not he did the whole thing, it doesn't really matter. It got me, got me my interest really peaked in, in hiking and long distance hiking. And I actually had the pleasure of serving on the Pacific Crest Trail Association board with him a few years back. It was like, wow, I can't believe this guy's real. And I'm talking to him. It was amazing. But <laughs> anyway, um, but I, but I, th- what really got started was in, um, in the late nineties, I, um, my wife and I were up um, on the California, Oregon border, Siskiyou summit area. We just, we were there to see some plays in Ashland, Oregon, and we went for a, a day hike up on the Pacific Crest Trail and ran into these through hikers who had, you know, made it that far from the Mexican border. And I was just blown away. I, I'd never met through hikers before. And, you know, I was looking at them I was like, these people aren't supermen. You know, they're they're just, just dirtier versions of me. I mean, I, I they could do it. I could do this. So I, I we, we went back to, we were living in Seattle at the time. We went back there and I immediately started planning the rest of my life, including and doing, doing the Pacific Crest Trail the following year. But, um, but anyway, in the course of that, I, I just, I started looking around at, at my, at my gear, which was old and, and heavy. And uh, I ran into some other material about making your own stuff. And I just I bought a sewing machine. I started making some things, simple stuff. But one of the things was 
a simple tarp shelter because I couldn't find anything light enough because my tent was too heavy. And it was a kind of a simple kind of modified A-frame tent with some mosquito netting along the sides and, and doors or windows. And um, I called it a tarp tent because it was sort of a modified tarp slash tent. It didn't have a floor, but it otherwise kept the bugs out. And I posted some plans on some site um, on how to make your own. And, you know, I thought, well, it might be, might be fun just to sort of express my ideas. And, and uh, you know, went away, I did the hike and I kept getting requests from people saying, hey, this looks kind of fun. Could you make me one? Like, no, I hate sewing, but you know, here's some, if you, here's some plans for you. If you want to make your own, you know, go find a seller and go for it. But uh, anyway, that would have been the end of it. But then the following year, my wife decided to hike the John Muir trail and borrowed my tent and came home and complained. That it was too hard to set up. And I was like, what? It was, I, it was fine for me for four months. <laughs> said, okay, fine. I'll make you a better, something easier to set up. And I spent months on that. And Finally came up with something that was a little easier. I had sort of an arch pole in the back, but basically the same idea. Um, and uh, anyway, we, we launched tarptent.com on tax day of 2002. Um, okay. And, you know, back in the day, I had a friend of a friend who was sewing them and, and we just, we, we took orders. And then months later, someone would get a tent from that I had shipped all the parts and pieces back to my friend's sister in New Hampshire and, Anyway, long story, but eventually we found real manufacturing and we, we were making stuff in, in Seattle until we still are, but it, because of COVID and a huge uh, Amazon um, human resource suck that's going on in Seattle, we lost a lot of people at our Seattle factory. So now we're making some stuff through a Hong Kong company and it's kind of it's more there now than in Seattle. I, I, want, I want to keep making stuff in Seattle, but it's just the, the, the human resource logistics are really tough. Mm. And that, that transition has uh, primarily happened within the last year in COVID? Yeah, in the last year and a half. Actually, it was pre-COVID that the, 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 our, our resource loss in Seattle was pre-COVID, which is in some ways fortunate because it allowed us to make the transition, you know, not knowing COVID, COVID, was, gonna, COVID was going to hit, but we were better prepared when it did hit because of that. Interesting. Yeah, the, the business nerd of Steve and I probably wants to dive off into a different conversation, but for listeners sake, let's keep talking about tents. Um, so go, going back to those early days, launching the company over the first year, couple of years, was, did it remain kind of one core model or maybe a model with a couple of variations or options? Because obviously now in the tarp tent lineup, there's there's quite a bit going on and that's been 19 years. But. Yeah, the first tents were just one, a bigger version of each other or a smaller, bigger version of the same tent, the Virga and the Squall, okay. which was an arch pull at the back and a, and a trekking pull at the front. One little fun little fact was I'm not and still am not a, was not and am not a trekking pole user. And we just shipped that original tent with a little, you know, pretty thin, flexible, but light front pole and, and I occasionally get notes from people going, Hey, this is, this is great. Like the tent. Um, don't use your pole, use my trekking pole instead. It was like, what? Of course. It hadn't even occurred to me that you would use that. You could use a trekking pole for tent setup support. I got divert. Why do you not use trekking poles? Um, you know, I've just never found the, the, the need. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm freer and faster without them, I guess. Oh, interesting. Maybe. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 they're, they have utility certainly for crossing rivers and all that, but I just never, I just never got into it. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of them in our office right now that we use for testing, but I don't, I still don't, don't use them for 
daily hiking. Hmm. So one thing I think is interesting is looking at the landscape of uh, backpacking gear from you know, cottage companies to the bigger companies, but keeping it in the general outdoor backpacking market is there's many companies where by decision or not, hunting is not a part of a part of their strategy. Um, one thing that stood out to me is that you guys aren't necessarily, like, I would say marketing to hunters, but I've always found interesting, at least uh, in recent years in my context, I don't know when this happened, but if you go to tarp tent and you're looking at, again, I mentioned many shelters now, and you can kind of filter by activity that you guys do list hunting as one of the activities. So I'm curious what sets that apart. So is, if you're talking about a shelter and at least internally, what does that discussion look like for you guys where you make that decision of this would apply to hunting or not? Like what are those attributes? So we, we do have one, one hunter in the office um, and we rely on him a bit, but to pick his brain a bit, but, but I, I, you know, generally the, my, my thinking has been and continues to be that at least my understanding is that the times of year and the places that you go, especially for backpack hunting tend to be, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, you know, late summer into fall when it's starting to, the weather's starting to change a bit and get colder um, and so, you know, tents that have some snow load support capacity and also have some at least, least, at least a double wall kind of option with a solid fabric interior for warmth. Um, and then of course, some vestibule gear space that those are sort of the, the three criteria that in my mind, make a tent perhaps better suited for hunting than, yeah. you know, that might be. So. Yeah. You definitely need a trans. I mean, we're kind of in that three plus season, you know, getting, yeah. getting a, you know, eight inches of snow is happens for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that gear storage is obviously important as we're going to have, you know, potentially weapon, obviously of bow or rifle or some other things with us that backpackers wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No, I, I appreciate that. And so the, the vestibule size space and uh, you know, some, some tents certainly are clearly limited for vestibule space, but others are, are better. I just, more space for packs and bows and guns or whatever. So, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Do you, do you would you s- go ahead? Well, Steve. As I said, do you see a big difference between um, the double wall shelter and, and a single wall and warmth retention? Have you done yep, tests um, on that? Yep. So um, it's, it's on the order of, it depends on the wind speed, of course, but it's, it, it can be as high as 10 degrees. It's maybe somewhere between five and 10 on average, I would say. Wow. Yeah. That's way more than I would expect. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Now that would be a completely kind of open single wall design versus a, um, a double wall with a solid fabric interior. The other thing about the solid fabric interior is not only does it trap warmth, but certainly at low, this is a problem with all tents with low level meshes. They're just not great at stopping that cold breeze from reaching your head and face at night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so even having a a low perimeter solid fabric interior, just it's, it's a comfort thing. You know, you just don't feel that cold air blowing over your face. Yeah. That's what, uh, what my 2014, I think was my first tarp tent. I had a moment DW and that was one of my complaints with it was, yeah, it just, you would lay there and feel the wind coming across your face. Yeah. Yeah. You answered it well already, and I didn't ask the question yet. Um, I was going to ask beyond condensation, which is a conversation we can talk about here in a minute. What should people know about single wall versus double wall? And so you mentioned it there with warmth. 
um, with wind and breeze, but is there anything else before we do dive into condensation that folks should maybe know or consider about choosing between a single wall, double wall shelter? Oh, well, I mean, so there are of course upsides and downsides to everything. And, you know, the single wall tends the upside of course is that it's less fabric. It tends to be lighter. It's, um, I would say all tents suffer from condensation. I don't, I don't care what fabric you use or whether it's a single wall, double wall. It's just, where does the condensation collect and does it drip on you or you brush against it? The single wall tends to be a little quicker, at least to kind of deal with when it does get damp. Um, you, you know, you have easier access to wiping it down or, you know, shaking it out or whatever. So that's all good. The downside of course is that you are that much closer to it and it, what, what can happen with lots of tents when they do get wet, a single wall design when it gets damp on the inside, and then the, the, the exterior gets shaken in the wind or hit by a hard exterior raindrop is that internal moisture layer on the fabric will get bounced off, you know, dislodged. And so people experience that as misting or a little drop that's falling on them, which some people confuse with the fabric leaking, you know, especially if it's raining, but more often than not, it's just, it's just literally the condensation getting knocked off the underside. So a double wall does a better job of holding that up. It doesn't stop that action from happening, but the interior layer tends to block that from reaching you better. Hmm. More efficiently. Yeah. You mentioned condensation and that essentially it's going to happen to some extent uh, and in some way, period, regardless of shelter design, material choice, things like that just to lay a a very brief framework. We have listeners of the podcast who've uh, plenty of backcountry or backpacking experience. And we have listeners who are new from your perspective, just like a super high level primer on condensation uh, when it occurs most often. And then specifically beyond the shelter itself, how does things like site selection um, and the pitch or the setup of a shelter play a role in condensation as well? So, so quick, quick, shameless plug. There's a video on our site. I think it's pretty good. It's sort of an animated little video that um, one of our teammates did, but it talks about, you know, how to best, how to, how to look for the best site selection. But in general, what, what that means is, so two things. One is condensation is always a function of temperature and humidity. So when your fabric gets cold enough and, and water vapor in the air contacts that surface, that water vapor turns from gaseous form to liquid form and then you know, lives on the fabric. So that's what happens. Um, to the extent that you can avoid the, the, high con- the high humidity places wherever you are. So that's typically like people wanna camp in lake basins or river valleys or you know, wherever it is that's near water, which I completely get, but that also tends to be at least at nighttime, especially there's this kind of, um, it, it can only be about six feet deep, but there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a layer of moisture, just saturated air close to the ground in that area. So to the extent that you can get up out of those low spots near water sources helps a lot. That just reduces the overall humidity. And then the other thing, the, the key thing, I think, you know, depending on, or regardless of how much water is already in the air, it's amazing that at, I've, I've experienced this firsthand multiple times. Like you can pitch a tent, try it sometime, pitch a tent like that's half under a tree and half out to the night sky, exposed night sky. And in the morning, the, it's often the case that the part that's exposed to the direct night sky is wet and the part that's under the tree cover is dry. It's, it's amazing. It's because you get this radiational cooling effect at night. And so fabric 
just keeps radiating away in the infrared spectrum all night long and it gets colder and colder and colder and gets colder than the surrounding air, in fact. And that leads to condensation for whatever moisture is on the inside. It's interesting that way, but, 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 but basically get up out of the low spots, get under trees, try and f get yourself situated in, at least where there's a little bit of a breeze and take advantage of venting. And that's kind of all you can do. Can you touch back briefly on that, the cooling, the radiate cooling of the material and potentially being cooler than the air surrounding it? I, like I heard you say that, but my brain was still processing it before we moved on and I want to like understand that better. Yeah, well, it's just, it's just a simple fact of physics that, um, so uh, that materials have, have, have a temperature, an internal temperature, and that, that turns into a, a radiation. So there you have, you know, fabrics receive radiation from the sky and then reflect it back into the sky all the time. And to the extent that there's no, there's no reflection coming back to the surface, the fabric will continue to radiate away its energy. Just, you know, basically all the fabrics, anything above absolute zero has molecules moving around inside and, and that turns into a, a, a thermal effect and that, that, that energy keeps radiating away all night long if it, without being blocked by something overhead like a, like a tree canopy. And so you see this like at night, someplace you can see this is like around here, um, we're in an area where it, it, we have some winter, it gets some snow and it gets cold, cold at night. And I often see tree, um, uh, uh, roofs on, on houses going down the hill from here where I, I know the outside temperature is above freezing. I can measure it and there's ice all over the roofs. And it's because the roof is exposed to the night sky. And so you'll see frost on roofs, even though there's no frost, you know, elsewhere, it's because that roof tile is getting colder and colder all night long, colder than the surrounding air. And then the water vapor in the air collects on it, turns into ice. It's interesting that way. But. I've, I've seen that before. Like where it's like, I know it's not below freezing, but clearly there's frost there. I didn't, didn't know what was going on. That's interesting. That could be my coolest takeaway from this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of life's mysteries solved because I've been right there with you. That's funny. Um, before we dive further into shelter design, things like that, real quick, staying on condensation, are there any tips, tricks for dealing with condensation when it does occur, right? So something I've done uh, in the past is even to pack like a tiny little sponge and you can yeah. wipe it down and wring it out and just kind of get condensation off of the shelter. Uh, but anything kind of along those lines? Well, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think, I think that's, that's what I do too, is bring a little, a little pack towel, a little pack sponge and, and wipe it. I mean, and you also have to sort of learn to live with it in some sense, you know, you can't get too freaked out by it and uh, understand it's going to happen. And ultimately what really matters is that you're, you're, you're not impacted such that your bag gets wet. Right. Um, and then, uh, and often what I'll do is, is uh, if I'm out, and if I do get some condensation in the morning and I just, you know, get my bag out of there, get it, make sure it's dry and then um, pack the thing up. And then, you know, one or two or three times during the day, if I stop for, you know, food or rest and just, and if, it, and if it's a, hopefully a sunny day, I'll just pull the thing out and drape it over a, a you know, a, a brushy area or out on the open or whatever and dry it off that way. But basically you just have to sort of a lip to pack it up to some, some level of dampness, it's kind of unavoidable if you have to get up and go. Yeah. Got it. Um, one of the things I think it's overlooked with shelters until you get more experience with them is it, a lot of guys start to shop shelters and they'll look at specs, maybe 
uh, floor space, dimensions of the footprint, things like peak height. But what gets missed in a lot of those specs is really the usability of the space, things like wall shape, um, slope. And this even ties into condensation of, you know, not contacting condensation, whether you're changing layers or again, your bag space, things like that. So I feel like you guys do a really good job in shelters with maximizing the space, the livable space without, you know, just increasing uh, footprint of a shelter. That's something we've talked about a lot is hunters is there's many times we're obviously not setting up a shelter in an established camp or an established location. Sometimes they're very limited space. And so a small footprint's great, but then we also want to have usable space within the shelter. Um, can you talk about the intentionality there from your perspective with designs and maybe some of the ways that you achieve having maximal usable space with a minimal footprint? No, it's, it's a key component of everything we, we do is how do we, how do we maximize the, you know, the interior volume, especially at, at sleeping level, right? So, so you, we figure our sort of basic metric is, you know, anything up to about the first foot from ground level um, is, is you need to maximize that, especially for, for taller people. And um, it's not always dual. It depends on the design. So you're limited. So let's say, so for an arch pole kind of design, the arch pole can go either transverse across the sleeping space, in which case you still have to do something about the ends and get those ends up. But you've, you've maximized, the, of course, the interior volume through the center sit up, sitting up area. Or you, can, or you can go lengthwise, which means, you know, in theory, you've got decent um, usable volume at the ends because of the, the general slope, the angle of the arch pole, if you, if you really do make it in an arch. Um, but then you've got to deal, deal with what happens at the top and then what, especially as, as it slopes off on either side from that center of the arch or from the ends of the arch, I should say. So, you know, there's a, the, sort of, what do you do about the arch pole to enhance that? Or what do you do with trekking poles, which is even a harder problem? What do you do to enhance that? Because those things typically, this, the, that fabric, all fabric has to find ground or near ground somewhere, but you know, what do you do with the geometries of that fabric as it gets near ground? And um, so what, I mean, many of our tents have this thing called the pitch lock, which is two carbon fiber tubes in sort of a inverted V shape. And they, 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 for packing, they just, they just um, fold together and then you just unfold them and place them and stake them. Um, and that does a pretty good job of, of changing the slope at ground level, getting those, those, fly edges up off the ground and then making sure there's enough, uh, you know, it, it just enhances the volume wherever that pitch lock location is to the extent that you, you know, you, the whole, whole idea being to keep, keep that fabric away from your bag as much, much as you can. But that's, but even that is, it's tricky because, you know, the other thing that, that the other goal for tent design is, you know, you've got to, you've got to, pack the thing up and carry it with you, right? So you can't make, I mean, ideally I would make those carbon tubes longer, but but then it becomes more harder to pack the tent up. You, you gotta find a spot on your pack somewhere to store the thing. So it's, it's always a bit of a trade-off that way, but but generally that getting, whatever you can do to change the slopes um, that matter are kind of an essential goal for all our tents. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know how that answers your question, but. No, it's oh, absolutely. for sure. Um, 
as you guys have added models over the years, has that been mostly driven by customers, changes in the market that you see there, or mostly by you know, your own curiosity and kind of wanting to try new things and expand? And I know that's super high-ended, but um, that question just came to mind. I, I think it's mostly been a fairly organic process. Um, I don't, we don't, I haven't, until pretty recently, we haven't had a whole lot of intentionality, I would say. It's just sort of something will happen. And it's like, oh yeah, we could, we could do something here to make a, a two person tent that's, uh, you know, uses two trekking poles and ends up being freestanding or, or whatever it is that it's just sort of, how do we make that happen? And it's not something I do a lot of planning on. I sort of have a little bit of time, have had historically a little bit of time kind of post summer to think about what we might do for the following year. And I just start, I sit down on my computer and start playing around with stuff. And, you know, at this point um, there's enough, uh, there's enough existing product in our model line that you could kind of piece together design elements from different other tents and kind of see what happens with them in some sense. Mm. So like I said, the pitch lock thing is, is ended up in a lot of our tents um, because it's, it's a useful design element and you can, you can add arch poles to it and trekking poles to it and sort of, you know, come up with something new that it's still, it's still, it's one way or the other. I, I think of, of tents as, um, of, you know, skins and skeletons. So the skeleton is the, the trekking pole structure or the arch pole structure or both in combination with some other supports. And then it's the, you know, the skin is of course the fabric they use over the top of it. And, and that can vary as well, but yeah, these days it's changing a little bit because we have so many models now it's, it's, a, and it's understandably a bit confusing for people. You know, they log on the site. It was like, well, how do I pick the right one? <laughs> we spent a lot of time answering those kinds of questions and yeah. Probably, probably would behoove us to actually trim down the product line or start start you know maybe taking a few away that and, and putting some new ones in their place. But because there are a lot, a lot of products, so we have sort of and then there's always the production the production production issues. How do you keep all that stuff in stock? You know, as as needed over time, it's it's challenging. Yeah, it's something very intentional we do at EXO is keep things. We have one frame to choose from with different sizing and four bags. It's, yeah, keep it simple because we have you know is a young you know fast growing company. We have enough problems just keeping things in stock and production, like you mentioned. So, yeah. Uh, one thing in your designs, and again, I feel like this is something that I speak from my own experience. I'd say when I didn't have as much experience, I overlooked as I was considering shelter choices, but. Um, with your designs, I don't, I don't want to say all of them, but the ones that I'm familiar with, I should say, they're, they're easy to set up and particularly in bad conditions, like in the rain. You know, there's some shelters where just the way it's built, you have to set it up and essentially expose your interior um, to precipitation. Whereas with your shelters, uh, that essentially stays protected throughout the process. Um, so just speak to that a little bit. Yeah, that's actually a, a, a key um, design component, almost everything we do is I've always, so I, I think it's sort of tent, tents generally fall into kind of what I call the European model and then the American model. And those, those two don't, don't, don't really coexist very well. The American model, typically typical tent is, you know, it's typically a kind of a dome tent where you set up the interior first and then you throw the fly on over the top which is great when the weather's good and not good when weather, weather's bad, because as you said, that it, it exposes your interior to, 
to the exterior world too, too much, especially if it's raining. And um, so we, we make everything fly first is sort of the overall goal. At least, at least it can be set up fly first in order to protect the interior during setup and takedown. Um, and, you know, there, I mean, there's always a trade-off. So the, the downside of that, of course, is that you may not get as much, if you want to, you know, peel back the fly or set the interior up and then if, or at least partially, and then, you know, it starts to rain on you at night, quickly go out and readjust things. That's, you know, that's a little harder to do with our, our shelters. Um, but my, my goal is, is, you know, I think what matters more is that you, you stay as dry as you can. And if you don't get quite the star view you want, well, that's the trade-off, I guess. <laughs> um, I'd love to chat on materials, fabrics, uh, from a super high level, obviously things like Sill versus Dyneema. Um, Tarp Tent is one of several companies at this point where you can get the same exact model shelter, but in those two different materials. And those are going to come with obviously a different price point and different specs in terms of weight. Um, and then there's different you know, pros and cons, advantages, and um, the limitations to the materials themselves. So without diving into a specific model at this point, just start like with a really high level overview um, to help folks understand um, choosing between those two materials. Uh, sure. Okay. So, so historically until really the last sort of three years, I guess at this point um, we've, we've, we've used only silicone coated nylon. Um, you know, the fabrics have changed and advanced a lot in the last 20 years and Dyneema has been around for a good half of that period anyway. Um, I, I had a, a strong resistance to using it, not because of, not because I didn't think like it, I didn't feel like it worked well, but because of the price that you mentioned, it's, it's extremely expensive. Um, and, uh, I just, I was very reticent to put a $600 tent on the market when one half the price would, you know, do the same thing. There are, there are certainly advantages to Dyneema. Um, you know, the one that everybody gets all excited about, of course, is the lighter weight. It's, it's roughly depends on the flavor that Dyneema comes fabric comes in all kinds of different flavors, but, but the fabric that we use for the canopy is roughly, it's ha roughly half an ounce per square yard. And that's about a third of the weight of the sil nylon products that we use. So, you know, it's, it does result in a significantly lighter tent. Um, the other upside is it, is that it's very non-stretch. Uh, once you set it up and stake it well, it doesn't tend to change its shape when it gets wet. And, um, 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 and then of course, if it's, if it's staked well, it doesn't move around a lot in the wind either. I, I think the strongest tent we make by far is the Stratospire LI. That thing, when it's, when it's, um, you know, well staked, is just bomber in the wind. And then a lot of that has to do with the design, but, but the fabric in combination with that, just, it just doesn't go anywhere. It's, it's really nice that way. The downside to Dyneema, um, and it's a little bit of, uh, a, a hidden fact for, is, is that it's, um, it's definitely has a shorter lifespan. It's, we tell people it has about two thirds the lifespan of a seal nylon product. So, so in terms of like, I think in terms of through hikes, so you might get, you might get two through hikes out of a Dyneema tent with some patching along the way and it'll sort of limp to the finish. Um, and I've seen plenty of seal nylon tents come back after three or more through hikes and, you know, they all need some work, but the seal nylon is inherently um, just longer lasting. It's just the nature of the, the way it's constructed. The, the Dyneema is a laminate fabric. So um, if you think of like a, a thin paperback book, right, that you would stress on its side somewhere, 
the interior pages get stressed differently than the exterior pages. And that's sort of what's happening with Dyneema fiber, Dyneema fabrics, is that these are multiple layers that are bonded together. And when, you, when they get bent, when they get heavily bent, so that by that I mean stuffed or folded heavily, repeatedly, those, you start to get internal stresses in the fabric and the fabric starts to shear apart internally over time. And so you start to see that in terms of what, what people experience as little pinholes in the fabric. That's the, the mylar layer starting to, to break apart because they're overstressed by, by these layers that are getting bent in slightly different ways. But anyway, long story that, you know, it's, I think you have, need to understand that Dyneema has some huge upsides, but if you're, if you want one tent that lasts for as many years as possible, you know, Dyneema is probably not the way to go for that. Can you go back and quantify like, uh, a through hike, like how many nights that is? Because I'm guessing yeah, yeah. that's four months of continuous yeah, yeah, use. Roughly, yeah. yeah, roughly yeah. 120 nights or so for most okay. people. Yeah. yeah. So for the average hunter that spends, you know, 10 to 20 nights a year in the field, it's, that's still a, a 10 exactly. to 15 year tent. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, okay. right, exactly. So it, it, again, it's just, it's your, your use case. So yeah, if you're only out there for 10 or 20 <laughs> nights a year, by the time your Dyneema tent dies, you're probably ready for something else anyway. You're just, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. You touched on it there, but uh, one thing I was unaware of till I started researching further in the past um, facing this question is essentially the care of Dyneema and you don't want to stuff it. Like I'm so used to stuffing a sill uh, tents directly in a pack or directly in a stuff sack, but with Dyneema, you essentially want to roll it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Gentle rolling is the best, best way to preserve its, I mean, hence its longevity anyway. Okay. It, it, it talks about that breakdown, pinholes, things like that. Um, is Dyneema easy, easy to patch and repair? Yep. And so that's definitely an upside. So we ship all our tents out with some extra repair tape. And um, it's, it's, it's very, very easy to, you know, at least at, at the beginning of the breakdown or just any little puncture along the way, it's super easy to just peel off a little tape and stick it on there and it's permanent that that's definitely a nice feature of that tent. Yeah. You, you mentioned Dyneema not sagging or stretching um, in conditions and getting wet, things like that. Is that a disadvantage when it comes to setup and it essentially being less forgiving because it doesn't kind of stretch into place as you're setting it? Yeah, it can be. Yeah. So um, if you're in a very uneven terrain and depending on the tent design, um, if the tent design is such that it, it really depends on, on, you know, very precise sort of geometry, um, and position the tent, the tent, the stake points need to be in kind of pretty precise precision or, or locations for it to, to set up well, then yeah, if you're on, if it, that it, it's either taught or it isn't, <laughs> which is why some people complain rightly so about how Dyneema, if it's, it, it can flutter a lot in the wind if it's not staked well. And that's because it just, there's no, there's no forgiveness for, a, for a, um, not quite a solid pitch on Dyneema. It's either, it's either tight or it isn't. Whereas sill nylon, you know, because of the inherent stretch characteristic of the fabric, there's a, there's a wide range between super tight and not so tight, but still tight enough to where it doesn't flutter. It doesn't rapidly flicker in the wind the way the Dyneema can. Yeah, my uh, current shelter at the Aeon or Eon Lee has Eon, Eon mm-hmm. yeah. That I've noticed um, it's more finicky for me um, with the stakes. Just it basically, if I stake one corner and then I go to the other side and start to pull tension, uh, it pulls the other stake out of the ground just because I think there's no 
right? They're, you're like almost directly pulling on the opposite st- state because there's no stretch in the fabric. Um, so it's something I have to like really look for a good ground or pile rocks on the stakes to make sure it stays in place or, or get longer ones. I mean, one of the, one of the, um, you know, we have to play this game against other people making tents and particularly for Dyneema tents is the, the whole goal here is to get as light as possible. So, you know, I, I will freely admit those six inch stakes are insufficient in, in loose soil. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, if you can get stakes that hold, hold well in whatever soil type you have, and I think what you mentioned is less of a problem, but sure, if it, those those stresses, those forces transfer right through Dyneema from one end to the other, there's no there's no inherent give in the fabric. So, so yeah, pulling on one edge will pull exactly with this, exactly the same force on the on the opposite edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other than that, that's was one of my favorite shelters today. That thing's been incredible. Yeah. I'd love to touch on stakes a bit more, but uh, wrap up material. Um, one of the differences, just again to reiterate, I think we mentioned in passing between Sill and Dyneema is the inherent water resistance. And in addition to the permeation of the fabric itself, things like seam sealing. So that's not required with the construction of your Dyneema shelters, right? Seam sealing? Yeah. So Dyneema, um, so when you put a, 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 a seam hole, when you stitch Dyneema, it of course puts a hole through the fabric and that fabric doesn't especially when you start, you know, pulling on it and staking it and using it in the wind or whatever, those seam holes will continue to open up a little bit over time. And there's just, they, they won't, there's no inherent, um, the, 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 that fabric will not inherently close itself up when it's stressed. It just, so that everything has to be taped. There's just no way around it. So um, yeah, so all Dyneema tents that we offer are fully, fully taped. It's just, they wouldn't work otherwise. Hmm. Okay. Um, touching back on sticks, uh, if I'm, if I have my information correct, you guys use Easton aluminum sticks primarily, which is a, a round stake. Um, number one, I guess, why those in general? And then number two, if you could just highlight maybe the different conditions, as you mentioned, maybe soil conditions, things like that, that would go into, uh, alternate stick choices. Yep. So, um, well, we have a long history with Easton. We've been using them for about basically 20 years at this point. Um, stakes are, are always a trade-off. There's no perfect stake for all conditions. Um, and, and then, I mean, there's a weight. So basically the, the ones that we use are, are hollow core aluminum. And there's two different sizes. The, 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 light, the lightest ones are the six inch ones. And then the, we make a longer or we don't make it, but Easton makes a longer eight and a half inch take that we do ship with some of our other tents and they, they certainly hold better, but you know, of course they're a bit heavier, um, for, for, for field use. I, I, I mean, again, there's, it's always a trade-off. So you can go with a, a, a you know, groundhog stakes or, or that kind of cross, um, you know, that the, the, the style of stake that, that has, um, um, a, a non, a, a different geometry than a rounded, a rounded tubular stake that those can hold quite well in soil. The problem with them, I think from a daily use perspective inside is they, they're just hard on your hands. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, they're hard. I mean, it hurts to put those stakes in the ground. I would love it if we could come up with a stake that had a nice rounded head on it, that would be easier to get in and out of the ground. But I mean, I like the Easton stakes for how easy they are on your hands to get in and out of the ground, but you do definitely have to be a bit careful with them because they're hollow too. But if you get one sort of halfway in the ground and then you 
whack it from the side with a rock, you, you, you can definitely snap those stakes. Mm. Um, you touched on wind prior and that's something we kind of want to chat about, um, especially with some prior experiences in Alaska and realizing how much wind can wreak havoc on shelters. Um, obviously that comes into all kinds of things in, in terms of the shelter design, uh, the profile of the shelter, as we've mentioned, staking, things like that. But just from your experience and perspective, maybe if you had any specific advice to someone um, looking for shelter that could withstand moderate to high winds, uh, what are those things we should be thinking through? Um, just like general, general, when you look at a tent, wait. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, okay. So the the number one thing is, um, I mean, the number one way to avoid wind stress is to reduce what the wind sees in some sense. So that means getting the surface areas is getting the surface area. Um, any, any individual panel should be as small and as, um, uh, directed away from the wind as possible. So basically tents that are big flat panel tents, like big a frame tents, big long side panel tents that are staked at the front and the back and nowhere else in between, uh, where they're broadsided by the wind. Those, those, those just are inherently the worst kind of shelter designs for big winds. Um, so what you want to do for wind is if, if you have any choices, get, get your tent at least pointed in the direction that where the wind sees the least surface area. And then beyond that sees the least surface area at higher elevation. So the wind speed tends to increase as you get above ground level. So anything that gets, gets your surface area down and spread out and, and least, least amount of that the wind sees the smallest surface area is the best way to direct your, direct your tent. If that, that makes any sense. Um, and then, so, but, but for overall tent design, right. So the big flat panel tents will, will always fare worse than the ones that are kind of faceted. And, and I would say the tents that are, have mid, mid support, whatever that is, whether it's an arch pole or some trekking poles in the middle of the tent where that reduce the overall unsupported panel sizes are, are typically better for wind than otherwise. Does the, well, I guess in general, do you guys do any specific tunnel testing, wind testing for your different designs? Well, I wish I had a tunnel machine. No, I don't. Yeah. Um, we try and we try and, you know, test them the best we can around here. We'll take them up to the higher peaks in the Tahoe area. And um, I mean, I've been doing this long enough to come I kind of inherently know what's, or, or I inherently know what I'm suspect I, that I suspect won't do well or will do well. And then I'll go check it out. But, um, you know, based on the criteria that I, that I, that I just talked about, I, I, I have a pretty good sense up front what works well and what doesn't. Stakes are always, you know, any tent that can't hold itself to the ground will, will fly in the way in the wind. And it doesn't matter, you know, what you use to, what kind of pole structure you have. It has to hold the ground or it's, it's gone in the wind. So ultimately it really does all come down to holding that thing down and getting sufficient staking to ground level. But, but beyond that, you know, bowing around in the wind moves panels, moving in and out on you. That's something I think about a lot. And so, and again, that comes back to fabric. So Dyneema is great for, for preventing that from happening. We, we look, we look, um, we continue to look for fabrics that, that have, you know, lower bias stretch. So we haven't talked about polyester fabrics, but one of the, one of the, I mean, we're looking into polyester fabrics. I'd like to find one that I like. So far, the ones that I've found, 
nice thing about polyester is it doesn't stretch when it gets wet, but the way it's constructed, if you want a light fabric, there's still some inherent, there's in fact more inherent bias stretch in those, some of those polyester fabrics I've seen, the light ones, than in the still nylon that we use. And the bias stretch is what contributes to lots of moving panels in the wind. You know, you get a lot of sidewall flex on a, on a tent with a high bias stretch. Would you say that the tents with the arch pole design from your lineup would inherently be better in wind than some of the ones that are simply trekking pole supported or can they be equivalent? Um, yeah, I think it's very much, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't stack any single arch pole tent that we made. Like the double rainbow is our probably been our most popular product over time since we started it in like 06, I think it does pretty well in the wind, but it's, it's a single arch pole and um, you can really only, I mean, you, you get, get a sta- stabilized structure pretty well along the plane of the arch pole, but not so much side to side. And so, you know, typically, typically multiple arch poles are better than a single arch pole. So like our SCARP series, the SCARP has standard one arch, but then the option for two more crossing pole setup and that like the scarf one with the full crossing pole setup. So that becomes three arch poles is, is very strong. Um, you know, again, it's all a trade off. So it adds, it adds uh, weight and complexity and all that, hmm. but trekking, trekking pole, generally trekking pole tents, I would say two trekking pole tents are, can be at least as good as a, as a standard arch pole tent. If, if you're able to get those panel sizes down, Right, and 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 change the the panel geometries. I I'm I, I'm not very impressed with like a typical kind of A-frame trekking pole tent. If you have a wide panel, do you know what I mean? Like if mm-hmm. depending on which way it's oriented, and um, the wider that panel is, the basically the greater the distance between the trekking poles, and the bigger that panel is to coming down to ground level. Those don't fare particularly well in wind without some mid-panel support or something else going on there to sort of change the geometry. Hmm. We do a, uh, a lot of Q and a, like with our audience, we get a lot of feedback and questions and gear questions. And we typically do a show each week. That's kind of mostly geared towards that. And I would say that one of the most common questions we get on shelters are hunters who are looking for a lightweight one man tent that has still decent livable space. Uh, obviously going back to the hunting context, probably good vestibule space for say their pack and their bow. Um, and often guys will like throw in that they want it to be trekking pole supported. So feel free to throw in one that is, or maybe isn't simply trekking pole supported, but for that guy who's, you know, he's solo, maybe a bigger guy also has the gear. Is there a specific one man tent you would recommend? Are you of the opinion that for maybe a bigger guy with gear, go ahead and upgrade to a two-man tent. So like getting into some specific model recommendations kind of for that use case, and I can clarify further if needed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, back to this trekking pole thing. So, and, and usable volume and all that. So one of the challenges with trekking pole tents is, and I'm going to speak directly to trekking pole tents where the trekking poles are in the middle of the tent to reduce the overall unsupported panel length. So some, some sort of modified pyramid type tent, whether you have a trekking pole or two in the middle and then it comes down to ground level. Um, 
um, the, just the, just geometry is such that you, the, the, you know, it's about, it's getting enough usable volume out of the things so that it fits taller people. So, you know, so like our Stratospire series that the two is a very strong, like the Stratospire one is a very strong tent um, and works well for people who aren't terribly tall. And by that, I mean, like if you're over six, two or three, you can probably pretty much overwhelm the usable length in that tent. Um, um, but it's, but it, the panels are, are relatively small. The, the, the panel lengths are relatively small in that tent and it's got big vestibule space and it has options for the two different interiors, the mesh interior, the solid interior. And, you know, that one I think is a, is a good, good late season, um, option for, for hunter types for, for a trekking pole tent because of that, because of the, just the, the warmth and the gear space and you set it up and don't worry about it, whatever, whatever happens with the weather. Got it. That's actually the one I personally had, had in mind. So it's an interesting to hear. It wasn't way off base. You guys do have, um, I believe uh, a kind of a filter that is good for taller people as well. Right. So some specific recommendations for maybe guys who are six, two plus six, three plus. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, for, for hunting use specifically. Yeah. So that, I mean, the next, the next, uh, you know, again, I, it, it all depends on how much, how much, th- uh, thermal feature you need out of your tent. You know, that the tents that work well for taller people are the, are the rainbow and double rainbow whether or not they're warm enough for use when it starts to get really quite cool for hunters is, you know, everybody's different. So, um, you know, some people are just shivering in their bag all night long. Other people just unzip the thing and just lay it over the top of them because they get too hot. So it's hard to, but there is a, there is a thing I I'm looking at at our little, uh, feature here right now. And I, the Stratospire, um, uh, two, I think for taller people can be used for as a solo tent. If you're, cause you can sleep diagonally, mm-hmm. you know, in a bigger tent, which is, um, and you can certainly get two or three more usable length inches out of that one for taller people and still get the same benefit. I, that one, that one tent that we make that's surprisingly good for taller people in the sense that your bag won't touch anything is the notch. Um, um, because of the way that tent's designed, the fly doesn't get, it's impossible to touch the fly on that one. Even if your bag hits the end of the interior, it can't touch the fly. So that, that actually works pretty well for taller people, given that as long as you're okay with, you know, not having a whole lot of room around your head, some people are, um, just uncomfortable with fabric. That's, it feels closed in when you're sleeping. And I totally get that, but but for keeping your bag dry, that one's for t- if you're taller, that works pretty well. Okay. We uh, overlooked something I had in my notes I want to touch on, especially again for guys who are kind of trying to understand the foundations of shelter comparison and selection. That's essentially what are the considerations on when to weigh the importance of choosing a freestanding or non freestanding tent? Mm-hmm. Um, well, as I said earlier, I think. Freestanding is free floating when the wind picks up, um, unless it's, you know, well staked, but I get it. There are places where it's very difficult to stake. And, um, for those places, free, you know, freestanding cap- capacity makes, certainly makes life easier. Um, you don't have to search around so hard to find it, find a spot. Um, we don't have a whole lot of freestanding choices. So we have the rainbow, double rainbow can be freestanding with trekking poles, 
Um, the moment can be freestanding. The, the, the scarp series, we had a tent on the market for a while called the Bowfin, which mm-hmm. is out of production now, but it's going to come back, I think late this, late this year in a revised form, but that'll be a freestanding tent. Um, you know, it's all a trade-off. Typically freestanding tents have more pole structure, which makes them inherently heavier. So. Yeah. I've always I've, uh, used both, but I've primarily been using non-freestanding for the last 10 years. And um, you seem to always make it work. There've definitely been challenging situations where it's like the ground is completely loose or it's too rocky, but uh, yeah, with, you know, a little bit extra guy line or something, you know, it might take you 10 more minutes to get set up, but you can wrap that guy line around a heavy rock and, you know, kind of get the stake down. Yeah. It, it just observationally, as well as experience with the functional aspects of tarp tent designs, it seems like you guys like to obviously do things like we talked about usable space, um, contact, um, with the sleeping bag ventilation, et cetera, things like pitch lock, which you mentioned. So you have like usability in mind, but things remain very simple to use. And that probably goes back to even what you're talking about of, you could even improve pitch lock on certain instances, but from a simplicity usability perspective, you want to keep those uh, carbon sections lower for packability. So I'm just, again, super high-ended, but how do you balance and designs functionality with kind of simplicity and usability? Uh, from a high level. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so I guess my overall criteria is that, is that I'm not interested in making something that I wouldn't use for myself. And, and I, I and I, you know, I do appreciate, I've got to be able to set it up pretty quickly, whatever it is. Um, and um, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not someone with a super skinny pack and I've been, I do appreciate the, you know, the, the desire to store your tent horizontally. I'm okay storing it vertically because I just move some other gear around and I have a sort of a big butt pack anyway. And it's, that one works fine for tents that are 16 inches in length, but not 18. Um, so, so yeah, packability is not, not super high on my, my personal list just because I get around it but definitely ease of setup is big and then volume. And I'm not particularly tall. I'm only 5'11", but, but I, but I appreciate, um, and I'm, I'm working hard to try and come up with some tents. I think you'll see some new stuff in 2022 that, that really gets, we're really trying to get some tents out there on the market that, that work well for quite tall people. Um, because I think that's actually an area of the market that hasn't been very well served is getting some stuff out there that, you know, fits people up to seven feet, I mean, reasonably well. So that's, that's actually a goal of mine. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, how do you, how do you feel again, 19 years into this and you talked about prior, like a lot of your designs have, have come from yourself, but I guess in terms of shifts in the market preference developments, um, what have you seen that's changed that's maybe surprised you or that's um, been, you know, a challenge to meet, I guess, over those times? Um, well, there's certainly, I, I think, you know, the, I'll just group them all, call them big box companies, <laughs> but lar- larger, larger, 
you know, gear manufacturers, tent companies have definitely, I think, seen, ha, ha noticed their, the, the, the interest in lighter weight things and have moved in that direction. Um, personally, I think it's gone a little off the deep end in some places. I, I've seen some tents on the market now that, that seem that have, I, my personal opinion have gone too far, that the fabrics have just gotten too thin and, um, you know, it's all kind of a bit of a spreadsheet game, right? So you, you sell a tent and then you, you, you prepare for, plan for some certain percentage of those tents needing to be replaced one way or the other. Um, but if you sell enough of them, I feel if that the ratio between what sells and you never have to worry about and the, and the ones that sell and you do have to worry about is high enough, then it's to your benefit to sell as many, you know, to, to keep selling as many as you can. And, but I've seen a lot of tents, a lot of fabrics now that are, they're so thin, you know, down at the 7D level that are so thin that um, particularly for the through hiker crowd, you know, the long distance hiker crowd or the people out there many, many months, potentially a year um, are just inherently not very long lasting. <laughs> and, and that, that, that bothers me a bit. Um, you know, for people who are out there just a few nights a year, by the time the tent breaks, fails, um, they're several years out anyway from having purchased the last one. And then the thinking is, well, I'll just get another tent. <laughs> but anyway, I, I just, I, I'm very resident, reticent about getting down into those super light, super thin fabrics. So I don't think we'll go there. But, you know, the Dyneema stuff is very thin as it is, but I don't think we're going to get any thinner than that, lighter than that. What type uh, of warranty do you guys offer? So it's, uh, it's, you know, def defects in fabrics and workmanship is lifetime, um, 30 day return policy. And then we have a, we have a good repair service. If anything has a problem, you, you know, we have, we can repair it. We send out, I'd say the number one, the number one wear and tear repair issue for probably all 10 manufacturers is zippers. It's, it's the one moving part, right? And so you're, you're zipping up and down probably several times a day. And what happens in the field is that zippers get clogged with dirt and dust and grit and grime. And when the slider slides up and down over that, over that, the coil, the coil is now to the slider, the coil is wider than it was when it was new. And so the slider spreads apart in response. And so what you'll find is that after a while you start zipping up and down and no longer zips behind itself. And that's, classic slider spreading apart syndrome. So, um, you know, we often send sliders to people on trail or we tell them how to repair it, at least in the short term. Um, but that's, it's, it's unavoidable. And it's just, all you can do is to keep your, your zippers as clean as you can, especially on a long distance hike on a dusty trail. Do you, for that, do you recommend that it kind of like brush them to keep them clean in those Yeah, wipe conditions? them down, even a wet cloth. If it, you know, you wipe it down with a wet cloth and the cloth turns black. That's good because it's stuff's coming off your, your zipper. Awesome. Henry, this has been great. Um, Steve, do you have any, any other questions before we let Henry go here? Yeah, I think we kind of covered all the topics. Yeah, it's been super, um, I said to Henry, I've been a big fan. That moment with DW was a, I really like that tent. They, it was um, the simplicity with that thing pitched. And it, for us as hunters, we are, you know, we don't, oftentimes we're hunting until dark and then we're, you know, on the side of a mountain trying to find a place to sleep. And that tent in particular was very easy to pitch on uneven slopes, just one stake on the end, pull it tight and 
and the other side was great. Um, or yeah, you just pitch it down, and that thing was that was a great tent, just a little cold, as you mentioned, and then moved on to that Eon, and it's it's been um, great as a one man shelter. I've, I've really enjoyed it. So 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 yeah. one thing I forgot to mention was um, there have been numerous uh, pressures is maybe the wrong word, but lots of people have asked over the years, well, why don't you go retail and and I, I, I very much enjoy these kinds of conversations with actual users. And the problem with retail is your, your, your customer is not the end user. Your customer is the store that you sold it to, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I love having these conversations and I love getting direct feedback and it helps us make better products. And so, you know, to the extent that you all are others in your, in your friend hunting group, whatever, have requests, suggestions, whatever. I'm always all ears about that because ultimately I want to make better tents. And if there's something I can do to make, if we're missing something that's particularly applicable to, to hunting, I'm, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Good to know. Henry, uh, appreciate the time. Appreciate uh, all the knowledge you shared with us for sure. Um, tarptent.com is the website, I believe. Is there any other resources or anything like that you point people to? Uh, no, that's it. I mean, it's social media and all that, but yeah, tarptent.com is our site. Awesome. Well, we will include a link to that. And as you mentioned, uh, prior, even if you're not specifically interested in browsing shelters, which I think you should, there's also some cool resources on there. As you mentioned, Henry, that video on site selection and, uh, kind of some similar informational pieces that are worth checking out either way. So once again, thank you. Uh, really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Well, there you have it, guys. That was a great learning from Henry all about shelters. There are some links to additional resources in the show description, so be sure to go check those out. And if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes of the Hunt Backcountry podcast automatically, and we will talk to you soon.